Welcome to Time Traveling Team, the weekly podcast where we review every story of Doctor Who right from the very beginning. I'm Patty. And I'm Trisha. In this week's episode, we join the Doctor and Leela as they face off against the robots of death. We will be discussing the Doctor, the companions, the villains, and give your thoughts on the story as a whole. We'd also love to hear your thoughts on this story, so in order to join the discussion, you can check us out at Time Team, that's T-I-M-E, T-E-A-M-P on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, or you can email us at timetravelingteam at teamproductions.com. I suppose uh, I completely paused there because normally you lead me into the story recap, so I will lead myself into the story recap. Off you go. Thank you. You're a big boy. You can do it yourself. Yay. Part one. On a barren planet wracked by sandstorms, a large sand mining machine makes its way across the landscape. The human crew of the sand miner relax in the common room, whilst the robot servitors keep an eye on the machine's progress. Other robots cater to the crew, bringing them food and giving them massages. One of the crew, Chubb, tells the others of a story he heard where a robot servitor ripped the arm off its masseuse client back at their capital city. Another of the crew, Dask, says that that sort of malfunction would be next to impossible due to the robot's fail-safes and programming. One of the robots, V-14, informs Commander Uvanov that the current storm is increasing in intensity, and Uvanov tells the crew to go to their stations. He tells Chubb to get an instrument pack from the storage room as they leave. Meanwhile, in the TARDIS, Leela is concentrating intently on a yo-yo and asks the Doctor when she can stop. The Doctor says that she can stop whenever she wants and realises that she mistook it for a serious task instead of it being a way to keep her occupied. Leela then asks him how the TARDIS is bigger on the inside and he attempts to tell her by using two boxes and showing her how things change in size due to perspective. She thinks the concept is silly and the Doctor takes umbrage with her ridicule of Time Lord science. The TARDIS then lands and the Doctor uses the external view screen to see where they are, and they see that they are inside a metal structure. Leela asks where they are and he says that he doesn't know. She laughs at the idea of him not being able to control the ship, and he becomes increasingly frustrated when he admits his lack of control of their destinations. They prepare to leave, but he tells her to leave her blaster behind, saying that if people think you mean them no harm, they would be peaceful. Usually, anyway. On the command deck of the Sandminer, Uvanov and the human crew take their stations and monitor the sandstorm. Uvanov is informed that Chubb hasn't arrived yet and he sends one of the crew, Poole, after him. He gives out about Chubb's incompetence and says that he is only on the ship due to his familial connections. His mood improves though when Tuse, the geologist and pilot, says that the sandstorm contains particles of valuable minerals and they will make a nice profit from it. He is then informed that something is causing obstruction in the scoop deck and he orders it to be removed. One of the robots activates a crane scoop and removes the blockage, which turns out to be the TARDIS. This goes unnoticed by the Doctor and Leela, who went to investigate a nearby shoot Kate with residual alloys. In the storage room, Chubb is cornered by one of the robots, whose eyes are glowing red, and is strangled to death by him. Poole hears his screams of terror and runs towards them. He finds Chubb's body and rushes back to the command deck and tells the others. Uvanot tells him the investigation will have to wait as the storm has changed course and that they could miss harvesting the minerals. He eventually relents when the rest of the crew refuse to continue and orders the harvesting process to be aborted. In the collection shoot, the Doctor realises where they are and tells Leela they need to get back to the TARDIS, or they'll be shredded to pieces by the high-velocity storm approaching them. They rush back to find the TARDIS gone, but the shutters then close due to the ceasing of the harvesting process. Two robots, V-17 and D-84, then enter the scoop chamber and confront them. Poole takes Uvanov to the storage room and they investigate Chubb's body, finding a small red disc on his hand. Uvanov takes it off and orders all the crew to be assembled immediately in the common room. The crew immediately begin accusing each other of their crime due to the various animosities they have between them. Uvanov then shows them the disc that he took from Chubb's body, and Dask says that it is a corpse marker, a slang term for the ID discs put on deactivated robots. Meanwhile, the Doctor and Leela are taken to a guest room by robot V9, who listens at the door when the Doctor explains what the Sandminer does. Leela asks if the robots are dangerous, and the Doctor says that they are just machines, and it is their owners that they should be worried about. 
The door opens and another robot, SV-7, enters and then asks them who they are and what they are doing on the sand miner. The doctor says that they were trying to leave the sand miner and SV-7 then leaves himself and tells him to stay in the room. After SV-7 is gone, the doctor uses his sonic screwdriver to open the door and tells Leela they need to find the TARDIS before taking a look around the ship. SV-7 informs Uvanov and the others of the presence of the doctor and Leela. Uvanov says that they must be the murderers and tells the others that they need to go back to work. However, one of the crew, Borg, says that they still need to do a proper investigation as there is no proof the Doctor and Leela killed Chubb. The crew again takes sides as to what is course of action to take, but they are interrupted when SV-7 calls to say that the Doctor and Leela have escaped. Uvanov orders them to be recaptured immediately. At that moment, Leela wanders away from the Doctor and into a storage room where she sees Chubb's dead body. Meanwhile, the Doctor finds the TARDIS and takes a look around for Leela. He opens a door which leads into a collection hopper and he sees a body of a man inside it. He goes to investigate, but suddenly the door shuts behind him and the collection hopper starts to fill up with ore. Part 2 The ore completely covers the doctor before stopping, but he manages to stick a metal tube up through it, allowing him to keep breathing for the moment. Suddenly the ore starts to drain away and the door is opened by SV-7, who asks the doctor what he was doing in there after he tells him the readout showed a high impurity level in the collection hopper. The doctor shows him the body and SV-7 informs him that the man is Carol, a crew member who has been missing for several hours. SV-7 then orders a robot to come and take the Doctor to Uvanov for questioning. Meanwhile, Leela takes cover as two robots take away Chubb's body and she follows after them. She rushes back to the room where she and the Doctor were held to tell him what she saw. She sees something moving behind a pair of curtains and carefully approaches it with her knife. She pulls back the curtains to see the body of Cass, a member of the crew who went to aid in the search for her and the Doctor. She turns around and sees another robot, D-84, in the room who then suddenly starts to approach her. She lashes out at him with her knife, but he catches her arm and asks her to be quiet. He tells Leela that he means her no harm, saying that he could easily have killed her if he was also the one to have killed Cass. Leela regards him warily and refuses to answer his questions on the grounds that he is just a robot. D84 shows her Cass's hand, which has a corpse marker on it, and asks if he knows what it is, and she replies that she doesn't. He then asks her not to tell anyone about him, and then quickly grabs her moments before Uvanov rushes into the room. Uvanov sees Cass's body and then angrily slaps Leela, accusing her of murder. She kicks him in the stomach and protests her innocence, saying D-84 can vouch for her. He tells her that D-class robots are mute and says that he should kill her due to the money that she has cost him as a result of the murders. Poole arrives and informs him about the capture of the Doctor and the murder of Carol. Poole then asks Leela why the bodies are given the corpse markers, but Uvanov berates him, saying that he is giving her a chance to avoid confessing. Poole says that Dask knew what they were and could just as easily be a suspect. Uvanov and Poole then begin to throw suspicion at each other before Uvanov orders a protesting Leela to be brought to the common room. In the common room, the doctor offers Borg a jelly baby, but he angrily slaps them away. Leela and the others arrive and Uvanov tells them about Cass's death. Poole brings Borg into suspicion by saying that he had earlier put a corpse marker on Cass as a joke before leaving with him to search for the doctor and Leela. Uvanov then demands to know who they are and the doctor says that they arrived by accident and Canby tells him that their arrival at the time of the murders is just a coincidence. Borg says that he must be, have been trying to hide Carol's body, but the Doctor says that it was most likely a trap for him. Poole, Toos and another crew member, Zelda, agree that he might be telling the truth, but Uvanov orders the Doctor and Leela to be taken away and detained. Borg agrees with him, and Zelda comments that he only did it to take the blame off himself. Uvanov then breaks up the fight by saying that either the Doctor and Leela are the murderers, or one of the crew did it. The Doctor says that there is a third possibility, but Borg tells him to shut up. The Doctor comments on his intelligence and Borg attacks the Doctor, but Uvanov orders him to be taken away. After they leave, Zilda expresses her disgust with Uvanov's comments about everyone taking the financial shares of the dead crew members, but he gloats that he will soon be richer than her and her wealthy family. Elsewhere, 
A unseen figure gives a robot a corpse marker and instructs it to kill Zelda. In the detention area, the Doctor and Leela are strapped to the wall. The Doctor says that he needs time to concentrate to figure out the unlock code for their bonds and assures Leela it should only take them about three weeks. A few moments later, Leela hears someone coming and Poole enters and offers to help them. Leela is wary of him, saying that she knows a hunter when she sees one, but he says that they should trust him. He expresses his belief that they are innocent and asks the Doctor what was the other possibility that he mentioned earlier. He releases them from their bonds and the Doctor says that a robot could be the killer. Poole says that it is impossible as their prime directive prohibits them from harming humans. The Doctor tells him that bumblebees on Earth achieve the impossible every day by defying their anatomy. Poole then agrees to help and takes the Doctor to the storage room. In the storage room, the Doctor asks Poole what Chubb was doing in the room when he was found dead. Poole says that he was fetching equipment as part of the storm survey and the Doctor asks him to get the equipment in question. Poole can't move it and the Doctor asks him what he would do to solve it and Poole realises that he would need a robot's assistance. Elsewhere, Zelda, under the pretext of going for a rest, sneaks into Uvinoff's room and finds documents that shock her. She begins to sob and activates the shipwide intercom and accuses him of being responsible for the deaths. Uvinov leaves the bridge to go stop her, but her voice suddenly cuts off. Das says that the paranoia must have gotten to her, but Toos is not too sure. She messages Poole and tells him to go to Uvinov's quarters. Poole brings the Doctor and Leela to the common room, and after he leaves, the Doctor tells Leela that if a robot is the murderer, then it could completely destroy Poole's civilization, as it has become dependent on the robots. Poole arrives at Uvinov's quarters and finds him looking at Zilda's body. He orders him to be arrested and release him of his command. Uvinov tries to get past, but Poole's knocks him out. Back in the common room, Leela suddenly becomes anxious and tells the Doctor something is wrong. The Doctor tells her that it is nothing, but suddenly the strip miner lurches to the side, throwing them to the ground. The Doctor tells her not to say I told you so, and tells her to follow him. They arrive at the command deck and Toos tells them that the sand miner is out of control, veering towards a cliff ledge. Dask messages the command deck and says that he's found Borg dead and that the propulsion links for the sand miner appear to be sabotaged. Toos calls him back to the deck and the Doctor tells her to stop the sand miner altogether or they'll all die. The robots inform that the controls are not responding and the Doctor says that he will need to sabotage the ship further to save it. Dask arrives back and tries to stop him leading to the two of them to struggle, and Toos calls out that the sandminer is about to fall over the cliff ledge. Part 3. The Doctor tells Dask that the only way to save the ship is to cut the drive links, and Dask reluctantly does so. The sandminer comes to a stop, but then begins to sink into the sand. The Doctor says if they can repair the propulsion links, then the sandminer can stay afloat long enough for them to do the other repairs. Dask goes to fix it, but tells the Doctor to remain behind and start repairing the drive links again. SV-7 then calls the command deck and tells Toos about Uvinov being in custody. Toos acknowledges the situation and orders SV-7 to lead the other robots in repairing the sandminer. Leela then notices that Toos is injured and the doctor tells her to take her to the common room to rest. Poole goes with them and tells them that why he imprisoned Uvanov. He also tells them that Uvanov had killed a crew member on a previous trip by leaving him outside the sandminer to die, but he wasn't convicted due to the money that he brought in from the mining job. He reveals that the dead man was Zilda's brother and that she had come to find out the truth of his death. The Doctor joins him after having finished his repairs, and Dask then calls and says that they have also prepared their repulsion links, and they feel the machine rise out of the soil. The Doctor then takes Leela aside and tells her to keep an eye on Poole whilst he goes to speak to D84. Toos goes to her quarters to rest, and Leela questions Poole about his life on the sand miner. Poole says that he hasn't been on one in years, as he doesn't like being surrounded by robots. He then leaves, but locks the door behind him, preventing Leela from following him. He makes his way through to the ship, and comes across Dask in the robot repair bay as he is looking at one of the damaged robots. Dask then leaves, but Poole stays behind and cycles through the pods of the damaged robots. 
He finds one with blood in his hands, but he suddenly feels pain in his head and begs it to stop. Meanwhile, SV-7 receives a communication from the killer and overwrites his programming. Then in a secret room, the killer, wearing a hooded golden robe, overwrites a protest in damaged robots programming as well. In the guest room, the doctor meets D-84 as he is looking at Zilda's body, and he asks what his actual reason for being on the sand miner is, but he says that he cannot tell him. The doctor theorizes that he is some sort of robot detective, and D-84 admits that he was sent to investigate the ship. He says that the sand mining company that owns the ship received letters threatening a robot rebellion on the ship and that they were signed by Taren Capel, a noted scientist in the field of robotics. Capel has been missing for several years and no one knows what he looks like as he spent his entire life with robots. The doctor says that he must be one of the crew, but D84 says that he knows each of them. However, the doctor points out that he never met them before they joined the sand miner and D84 realizes that he has failed in his task. The doctor cheers up the disheartened robot by saying that he will help him search the ship for Capel's hiding place. Meanwhile, SV-7 goes to Toos and reveals that Uvanov has escaped custody as his authorization has not been revoked. Toos tells SV-7 to have Uvanov found and then orders him to bring Leela to her to help train her wound again. SV-7 leaves but instead goes to a group of robots and instructs them to kill the remaining members of the crew as well as the doctor and Leela. In the common room, Leela is attacked but manages to fend off the robot long enough to escape the room. Meanwhile, the Doctor and D84 find Capel's secret room and see signs of recent repair work done on the robots. D84 hands him a communicator and he calls Toos and tells her that the robots have been reprogrammed to kill them all. He tells her to gather Leela and the rest of the crew and go to the command deck as soon as possible. Toos goes to follow his instructions but finds one of the robots standing outside her door. She manages to close the door, severing its arm, and she begs for the Doctor to help her. D84 says that he will go as he stands a better chance against the other robots. Leela makes her way to the robot repair bay and finds Poole Halidi under a desk, but he is in a frantic state, stating that the robots are the ones in control now and that he serves them. He calls out for help, but Leela tells him to be quiet and leaves him behind whilst she goes to find the doctor. In Capel's secret room, the doctor is confronted by Uvanov, but the doctor sees a robot approaching him, but he's unsure which of them it has been sent to kill. The question is soon answered when the robot says that it must kill the doctor and begins to strangle him. Part 4 Uvanov takes a laser probe and sticks it into the robot's head causing it to malfunction and release the Doctor. The power suddenly goes off and the Doctor tells Uvanov to destroy the robot, but it brushes him aside and staggers out of the room. The Doctor picks up the dazed Uvanov and takes him down the corridor, encountering SV-7 before being cornered by two other robots, one of which is the one that Uvanov damaged. He asks SV-7 for help, but it orders the two robots to kill the Doctor and Uvanov. Doctor quickly puts his hat and scarf on the undamaged robot and the damaged one attacks it, confusing it for the Doctor. SV-7 summons the robot assigned to kill Toos, who at that moment had broken into her room and begun to strangle her. She falls to the bed unconscious as the robot leaves the room. A few moments later, Leela arrives at the room and sees another robot standing over Toos. She picks up the severed robot arm and throws it at the assailant, having lost her knife in the scuffle earlier. The robot deflects the arm and reveals itself to be D-84, who tells Leela that Toos is alright. He tells her that all the robots have been summoned by a priority call, which he was able to ignore due to his specialised programming. Two says the doctor instructed all the survivors to go to the command deck, and Leela takes her there whilst D84 goes to get Poole. As they make their way to the command deck, Leela and Two are forced to hide in a collection hopper whilst a pair of robots search for them before going after the search for the storage base. Two tries calling the doctor, but gets through to the SV7, who asks where she is. She's about to tell him, but Leela stops her, and Two instead says that she is in her room. SV7 tells her to wait there for safety. Once he signs off, Leela says that Sonny didn't sound right about the call, and Toos realises that SV-7 asked her to identify herself, even though he has voice recognition for all the crew. The Doctor and Uvanov arrive on the command deck to find several robots standing motionless. 
Uvanov says that Dask must have activated the deactivator switch as he is the one in charge of robotics. Leela and Tusa arrive a few moments later and Uvanov says that they are now safe, but the doctor disagrees. D84 then arrives carrying Poole and the doctor tells Tusa to seal the door. The doctor then reveals that Capel has modified several robots, which are currently hunting the survivors. He also reveals that D84 and Poole are undercover investigators sent by the mining company to arrest Capel. Uvanov says that Poole is suffering from robophobia and that he had seen it before with Zelda's brother, who ran out of the ship and couldn't be retrieved before being engulfed in a storm. Suddenly, SV-7's voice comes over the intercom and says that they have five minutes to surrender or they will be tortured to death. The doctor says it will take time for the robots to get through the blast doors and he suddenly gets a brainwave. He asks if there is any blasting power on the ship and Two says that they keep emergency explosive packs on the command deck. The doctor tells Uvanov and Two to start working on magnetising the packs so they can be used to destroy the robots. He then leaves with Leela and D84 and heads towards the robot repair bay. A few minutes later, Uvanov and Toos hear Dask banging at the door to be let in, but Toos says the doctor said to let no one else in to the command deck. Unbeknownst to them, Dask, now wearing face paint that matches the design of the robots, is waiting outside with the modified robots. He tells them to break into the command deck before leaving again with SV-7. In the robot repair bay, they find the damaged robot with the blood in its hand, which the doctor says belonged to Borg. He tells D84 to go to the storage room and bring back a gas canister. Leela asks what robophobia is, and the doctor explains to her that it is the fear of robots due to their inhuman nature. He then starts to work on the damaged robot to see if he can connect the Dasks, who he reveals to be Taran Capel, communication network. D84 returns with the canister, and the doctor tells him that he will have to stay in the repair bay, as he could be in danger of being destroyed when the doctor puts his plan into action. D84 says that he is not important, and that he is willing to sacrifice himself for his duty. The doctor reluctantly agrees, and they head back towards the command deck. SV-7 receives a report that only Uvanov, Tuus and Poole are on the command deck and Capel tells him to find the Doctor and Leela and kill them. One of the robots breaks into the command deck and attempts to kill Poole but Uvanov uses one of the modified blasting packs to destroy it. Uvanov says that they need to go on the offensive in order to buy the Doctor some time. The robot's destruction is reported to an astonished Capel and he orders all the humans to be killed whilst he goes to reprogram more robots. At that moment the Doctor and the others arrive at the secret room and the doctor gives Leela the gas canister, which he says is helium, and tells Leela to hide in the cupboard. He tells her to turn on the valve when Capella comes in, and reveals that the gas will alter his voice, thus stopping him from giving the robots any orders. Suddenly the door opens, Capella enters and stabs D84 in the head with a laser probe, which causes him to fall to the ground. A robot follows Capella into the room and punches the stunned doctor in the stomach, but Capella orders him not to be killed and instead have him placed on the repair table. Unbeknownst to him, Leela has opened the valve in the gas canister. The doctor then starts to mock Capel over his appearance in order to distract him from noticing his voice is changing. Capel angrily turns on the laser probe, which painfully beams into the doctor's brain. Suddenly, D84 picks up the doctor's communication device and activates it, destroying both himself and the robot guard. Capel angrily tries to stab the doctor as the doors open and SV7 enters, having been attracted to the sound of the explosion. Capel orders him to kill the doctor, but SV7 doesn't recognise his voice print and instead kills him. Unoff runs in and tries to put one of the bombs on SV-7, but he gets thrown aside. SV-7 then starts to strangle Toos, but the doctor manages to get free of the repair bed and stabs SV-7 in the head with the probe, which deactivates him. The doctor lets Leela out of the hiding space, calling her Mouse now that her voice has changed as well. They then make their way back to the TARDIS as the doctor says that an SOS has been sent, and he explains to confused Leela that he wasn't affected by the helium due to his Time Lord respiratory bypass system. They then get into the TARDIS and leave. End of the story.
thank you very much for that summary, Paddy. It was brilliant as always. Thank you. And since you did your own lead in to the summary, <laughs> I am about to tell you some trivia. Here we go. <laughs> so the air date for the Robots of Death was the 29th of January to the 19th of February, 1977. The writer is Chris Bout. Boucher, I still don't know I, how to I think, say his name. I think I call him Boucher. I don't know. I don't know. Chris, this <laughs> is the second of three on-screen stories for Chris. Like I said, we proved his work last week in The Face of Evil, and we'll see it again one last time in Image of the Fendal. The director of this story is Michael Bryant. This is the final of six stories from Michael. We previously saw his work in Colony in Space, The Sea Devils, The Green Death, Death of the Daleks, and Revenge of the Cybermen. The story had the working titles The Stormmine Murders and Planet of the Robots. A rumoured working title for the story was War of the Robots, but apparently there's no actual paperwork to show this. This is one of the few stories in Doctor Who, and I, I love this scene, I'm sure we'll talk about it more later, which tries to explain in relatively simple terms how the TARDIS is dimensionally transcendental. By using what I can only think of as the Father Ted logic of this cow is very small and that cow is far away. Yeah, um, I, I, I actually I really like well I like both of those scenes, but um, yeah. I know it, it's it's a really really good way of trying to explain something. Yeah, that was really good. I'm sure we'll talk about it more when we talk about the Doctor when we talk about Leela. Um, but it's one of the few stories which actually makes an attempt at explaining it. I think it's the first one that we've seen so far that makes a like a solid attempt other than it just is. Yeah. Um, which is right. This story is the last to feature my favourite console room. <laughs> um, so the wooden panel console room is not going to be in it going forward um, because the wooden walls warped while the set was in storage. Like which we, is sad because I really like this console room. Yeah, like we only get it for like four stories. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it's like I, said, it, I think it's actually my favorite. Certainly, like in my top three. Definitely, um, no. Like I think, and I think it suits Tom's Doctor very well. It does, and I wish we had more of it. Mm -hmm. um, but whatever. So, if you're a fan of robot stories in general, or stories about androids, or whatever, you could probably see that there's several in influences in the story. So Peter Hinchcliffe said. Or Peter Hinchcliffe, Philip Hinchcliffe said that you know he was inspired you know by Isaac Asimov, obviously. Um, your stories like I Robot, there's very prominent mention of Asimov's first law of robotics, which is pretty much considered in most media as being this sort of given thing, this sort of prime directive that mm -hmm. robots have, which is a robot may not harm a human being or through inaction, allow a human being to come to harm. Another thing, Agatha Christie. So again, mm. Philip very much aware that this needed to be a studio-based story, so there's no filming. And he's like, you know, kind of like a whodunit, like house murder type thing. Mm. So um, one of the stories specifically mentioned was And Then There Were None, in which several people are on an island being murdered one by one, and one of them is Keller. The Sand Miner. Hinchcliffe had recently read Dune, <laughs> and he thought that was really cool. <laughs> Poole's name is derived from science fiction author Poole Anderson, 
And actually in the novel Corpse Maker, which is also written by, I should call him Chris, because it's easier. Um, the character's full name is Anderpool. So Poole, Anderson, Anderpool. Uh, Karen Capel's name came from Carol Capek, whose play R.U.R. introduced the word robot in the first place. Ah. Also, you could kind of tie Yuvanov's name to Isaac Asimov if you were playing the rhyming game. And Borg, who massively predates the Borg hmm. in Star Trek, obviously Cyborg and whatever. So very much keeping things within a theme. Yeah. Lots of different inspirations, which we've said before, like particularly of the Philip Hinchcliffe era, they were very much oh, they were taking... looking for inspiration in you know, science fiction, in horror, in gothic romance the whole lot like it's like i've i really love hinchcliffe's era because there's so much of what i love in various different genres all put to good use yeah so one of the things that the story centers around is the idea of robophobia or an an irrational fear of robots Um, and at one point it's referred to as grimwade syndrome uh this is an in joke um the production assistant, Peter Grimwade, hated the fact that they were doing robot stories. And particularly, all the stories he was assigned to were almost always involving robots. <laughs> um, however, you know, it's sort of called out that like the description that they give of Robophobia, the way that they describe it, the fact that like the robot looks human but doesn't like it doesn't have body language, it doesn't have anything that you can connect to on that level. It's very similar to how people now describe the Uncanny Valley. Hmm. It's a very similar... I don't think people are necessarily afraid of the Uncanny Valley, but it's a very similar... It's just eerie. ...off-putting experience, I think. So, one of the things that I <laughs> noticed... Um, so, we'll talk about this a bit more later, I'm sure. Um, our cast of characters um, have very definitive clothes... Mm-hmm. They each wear their own color, so in part two you kind of know who's the killer because they show his legs. Yeah. Oh, I I have so many fucking thoughts on this. It's <sighs> like he could have done that any other way, but like we see his pants. Mm. We've seen him several times already. We'll see him several times still yeah. until like the official reveal. I'm like. Duh. That was like, like the film because the filming on this was really good, and that just seems like See, that was a mistake. Because like, there's, if if it had been if if they had shot it from two inches lower, it's mm. any, it's anyone, absolutely yeah. anyone. The minute you see the pants, you know who it is. Yeah, uh, which sucks because yeah. they were doing really well up until that point. So the precise setting of the story is kind of disputed, you know, in terms of um, canon. So the novel Legacy places it on Japetus, one of the moons of Saturn. Whereas other stories, so there's a comic story, Crisis on Kaldor, which places it on the planet Kaldor, as does the Kaldor City audio series. So, like, in the show, there's no mention of where it is. Um, but there's lots of differences in like different sort of offshoot media, so novels and 
comics and audio stories. Um, in terms of when it was set, which is also never given on screen, um, the Doctor Who program guide places it around the year 30,000. Um, but the Terrestrial Index, which is by the same person, says it's around the 51st century. Time Link places it in 2777, A History of the Universe dates it in 2877, and it's all just a hodgepodge. Um, I think this is one of those things of, you know, people creating additional media, which is great, like novels and whatever, picking up on a really good story, and because the show didn't give you anything to work with, they spin up their own part, but that's not technically canon, so you've got multiple... Yeah. versions spinning up at the same time. It could have been set in a galaxy like a galaxy far, far away at a long time ago. <laughs> yeah. And they could have been looking for spice. Um, yes. I I don't know if I'll talk about this later on. I find Louise Jameson with her knife to be kind of funny because she's clearly quite uncomfortable holding it. Mm. And she holds it in quite a dainty yes. way for someone who's meant to be a hunter. Okay. <laughs> But she did nearly kill someone with it. <laughs> um, so the scene where she throws the robot or she throws the knife at the robot. Mm. Her throw went wide and nearly stabbed a cameraman in the back. Oof. After that, they cleared the set. So it was just her and the cameraman. <laughs> um, and going forward, the knives she was given were always have to be incredibly blunt. So as to not run the risk of hurting someone. Um, the idea of like the subservient creature, the subservients turning against their masters um, is something that you know, crops up quite popularly in science fiction. Mm. It does crop up again in Doctor Who, particularly the Impossible Planet in the Satan Pit and Planet of the Ood, where we have the Ood, who are a living subservient species and um, but they also do the red eye thing hmm. um also see c-3po in yeah. the last star wars film red eyes mean bad apparently. <laughs> um another sort of callback in the modern show to this classic story could be in voyage of the damned where you have the heavenly host so those angel hmm. guys who have a very similar face to the robots here and they have a habit of chanting kill 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 so yeah a little bit of a similarity there um tom baker actually disliked the ending of the first episode's cliffhanger he suggested that instead it should be a bit more action-packed the doctor should swing on his scarf to kick the door open and whatever and he and michael bryant actually argued about it a lot until michael bryant revealed that graham williams who's going to be replacing Philip Hinchcliffe, Mm. was present to observe the shoot. And Tom kind of played nice after that. Also, I want to correct something. I said last week that this was Philip's last story. I was wrong. It's next week is Philip's last story. It's this week. Graham was on was on set, uh, and I got my I got my thoughts confused. The um, the final like that cliffhanger. Jesus Christ! It it's a very unnerving thing. Because, like, I remember uh used to uh, sort of work on my uncle's dairy farm and I have to feed the side of them, fill up them, the feeders. And again, it's one of those things of 
You have to go into this fucking silo that's just full of grain. But if you fall into the grain, it takes an awful lot of effort to pull yourself out of it. So if you're yeah. covered in it, bye. Yeah. Wasn't there something like that in... Witness. The Harrison in Witness. Fo- yeah. There was. Yeah. Yeah. It's one of the things where, like, I think it was Witness that terrified me of grain silos. Hmm. Because you think grain is light, but obviously at that volume, it's deceptively heavy (laughs) and the pressure is insane. Hmm. Cool. So on to our cast of characters. So as Ivanov, we have Russell Hunter. This is the only main Doctor Who story credit for Russell, though he does reprise his role in five of the six uh, fully dramatized Doctor Who spinoff series, Caldor City, which was produced by Magic Bullet Productions. His non-Who credits include Lily Marlene, Dixon of Doc Green, Cherry Orchard, As You Like It, Callan, and Up Pompeii. Russell passed away in 2004. Toos is played by Pamela Salem. This is the first of two on-screen appearances for Pamela, though she did provide one of the voices for Zoanan in The Face of Evil. Mm. And she had previously been considered for the role of Leela. We'll see her again in Remembrance of the Daleks. She also contributed to a number of audio stories. And her non-who credits include Never Say Never Again, where she played Miss Moneypenny, The First Great Train Robbery, Gods and Monsters, All Creatures Great and Small, and Into the Labyrinth. I will call out as well that um, the TARDIS wiki page lists like myths, which I don't usually go into when we're doing the trivia. Um, but one of the myths around Pamela Salem is that like, oh, they were considering keeping her on, keeping her character on as a companion. That's not true. That was never under consideration. And in fact, it's just something her um manager said to sort of spice up her cv as well but yeah to hyper up a bit uh pool is played by david collings this was the second of three appearances for david we previously saw him as Boris in revenge of the cybermen which i would not have connected those two characters together at all no and we'll see him again in mordron undead dask or taron capel is played by david bailey this is the only on-screen Doctor Who credit for David, though he did voice the Celestial Toymaker in the Big Finish production drama The Nightmare Fair in Solitaire. He reprised the role of Taron Capel in that Caldor City audio plays I mentioned earlier. And his non-Who credits include Pirates of the Caribbean, the first three of them, where he played Cotton. He's one of the pirates. Fuck. He was also in... Yeah, when you see him, like you see a picture of Cotton, yeah. you're like, oh, it is him. That's the guy with totally the, is. Yeah, Mr. Cotton's parish. <laughs> He's the guy yeah. who can't speak. Jesus. Uh, he was also in Gladiator, Ransom for Pretty Girl, and another pirate film, Cutthroat Island. I like that movie. I don't care what anyone says. Yeah. Uh, David passed away uh, just last year in March of 2021. D84 is Gregory DePolne. Assume I said that right. Uh, only on screen credit for Gregory. He did also do a number of audio stories, though. And his non who credits include The Group, Dixon of Doc Green, Space 1999, Howard's Way, and London's Burning. I would have been perfectly happy if D84 was the person to go on and be a companion. <laughs> Me too. Yeah. Uh, Zilda is played by Tanya Rogers. Only Doctor Who credit for Tanya. Her non who credits include Gangsters, Crown Court, Dixon of Doc Green, The Professionals, Minder, and Testament. Lastly, as Borg, there was Brian Croucher. Only Doctor Who credit for Brian. His non-Who credits include Crossroads, Sophie Sophie Task Force, The New Avengers, Trevor, Treasure Island, not Trevor Island, that's not a thing. <laughs> Treasure Island, Blake Seven, and The Young Ones. Uh, Anything to add to our trivia section for today, Paddington? 
No, I'm just imagining what the what life would be like if Trevor Ireland was a thing. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just imagining an island of toads just because of Harry Potter. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I just remember like, just all the famous Trevors like Trevor Russell, Trevor Howard, like just all on an island together, like getting on each other's nerves. <laughs> oh, see, no, I know what Trevor Island is. It's like after Shang Chi. Mm-hmm. It's where Trevor Slattery goes to sort of have his yeah. He's got Trevor Island. <laughs> I like it. Yeah. So, thank you very much for all that wonderful trivia. You're uh, very, very welcome. And I was doing my best to try and keep. You know, from constantly butting in because you know me, I really do like Agatha Christie an awful, awful yes, lot, <laughs> and I also really enjoyed the movie I Robot. And so yeah, there was lots of kind of things where I was like, ah, ah no, wait, no, I'll just hold off. <laughs> <laughs> so onto the character discussion, where uh, as we mentioned at the top of the episode, we will discuss the Doctor, the companions, the villains, and any prominent characters that straddle the line between the two. Um, so this week we have the Doctor, we have the companions of Leela, and I put down D84. Would you agree? Um, I had originally put them in um, prominent characters, so he doesn't really team up with them until like the second half mm-hmm. of the story, but I can see him as a companion. I can yeah. put him up. Cool. And then we have the prominent characters of Vanoff, Tuse, Poole. And then we have the villain of Dask, also known as Taran Capel. And then maybe just a brief note about the robots themselves. <laughs> they are in the title of the story, after all. <laughs> so, the Doctor. You didn't have them on my list, but okay. Uh, sorry. I will I... come up with something in the next half hour. <laughs> okay. I apologize. Uh, there's, pl- there's plenty of stuff to work with there anyway, so you're, you'll, you'll be fine. Um. So, as is the most recent tradition, whoever starts off the episode is the person that starts off the character discussion. Yeah, so that will be you. Yeah, that would be me. (laughs) Just so we're all in agreement. (laughs) Uh, Did you forget that that was you? (laughs) No, it wasn't. I was just kind of waiting to make sure that you, because you had a look on your face and you're like, huh? Oh, wait. No, no, no. He's right. (laughs) No, I was just reading. Okay, fair enough. (laughs) Off you go. Patty, what are your thoughts on the Doctor? Thank you. Um, I quite like the Doctor here. I really, really enjoyed him. I love his, like, nonchalant attitude that he had at times. You know, the... Oh, what was it? There, it was like, oh, like, he could have tracked in you or could have been homing in on this. We'll find out in a minute which, whichever one of us decides to kill. <laughs> uh, I thought that was great. Um, the offering of the jelly baby and, you know, just getting... You know, it slapped out of his hand. He's like... It's, I know it would have been perfectly sufficient. <laughs> I I like it when the doctor is laid back, like because mm. it 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 is just it adds something to the story, a bit like an element of kind of gallows humor, and I think Tom mm. does it really really well. He does that aspect yeah, of it really well. Um, in terms of like his presence throughout the story, I love his interactions with Leela. Like they're really mm. really good, and like. We get to see this sort of like reluctant but impressed schoolmaster because as he tries to teach her, and she picks it up in her own unique way, and like he's not kind of 
Cloutner on the back of the head or he's not trying to like just dumb things down for her because like when they start talking about like the robophobia you know mm. and she's like oh like uh, you know because people like they're um, they're terrified of them because you know they're they're emotional like oh they're like they mm. don't emote and she's like oh yeah because they're like mechanical men they're like the walking dead or whatever mm. and she and like he kind of this sitting around the learning tree type thing is really it's a nice mm pairing um i love the scenes with d84 as well uh, mm-hmm. just i think the one that i liked i like two ones in particular one which i'll get to the d84 thing because i think that's more d84's scene mm-hmm. but um when d84 like says that he's not important and mm-hmm. like the doctor goes like but you are and he, he kind of like he treats him like an individual yeah, and I I really really enjoyed that because uh, it, it that adds to the emotional hit for D eighty four's death. I think mm, I'd agree. Yeah. Okay. Um, also, there's the great MacGyver moments, you know, when he just like gets like his magician's wand and just to breathe out like through it, and uh, like watching him like tinker around with like the robot's head, it's mm. it kind of brings you back to like the era of doc john or even um like any of them actually you know it's just something like you know it's always nice to see him utilize whatever's around Mm, yeah yeah so those are my thoughts anyway yeah i i really liked him in this one as well i was particularly taken by his relationship with leela um like their opening scene is so good oh it's amazing um you know right from the beginning of it do you know where she's using the yo-yo and he's like i thought you just find it fun yeah <laughs> you know he's just like he's like you said i must go up and down i thought i had something to do what the hell dude i've been doing this for like an hour what the hell um but i love that though because it's very natural do you know mm. um and again you know we talked about it last week you know it's no secret that tom and louise did not have the best working relationship mm-hmm. you know it was very obvious he didn't particularly want not that he didn't want her around but he didn't want a companion mm-hmm. you know and he missed Liz and whatever so again I was concerned about how the relationship would appear on screen and you know what I needn't have been like we said it last week they had a really good dynamic it continued massively over into this week mm-hmm um yeah. you know there's a good camaraderie there like i was watching the behind the sofa for this and you know um i think oh, i can't remember if it was tom was pointing out how like when they came out of the tardis and they're walking up to the shutters they're holding hands hmm. you know and like it's the same thing that he'd do with any other companion which should be a given because of that sort of background information yeah it's really nice to see mm-hmm. um the, I mean, the other part of their opening scene is fantastic. I'll talk about it more when we talk about Leela. Mm-hmm. Um, but I love the fact that he trusts her as well. Do you know, like, he, you know, at one point he doesn't really believe her instincts, what her instincts are telling her. He's like, yeah. you're sensing nothing. What are you talking about? But then he's like, actually, do you know what? I, I made an error in judgment. She was right. <laughs> And you know he then trusts her to 
do what she does best, you mm. know, to follow pool, though she obviously doesn't get to do it, but like he trusts her to do her own thing. Do you know what I mean? And to be part of the team. She you know, he never treats her as someone who's less than capable. No. Even if she doesn't understand the technology, do you know? Which I love. Um the little bit at the end where he's calling her mouse, I just thought was adorable. Yeah. <laughs> Super cool. Um the dynamic between him and D eighty four is also really good. And like you called out the fact that, you know, he treats D eighty four like a person, you know. He's like, you know, you do have value, you do have worth. And for me it kind of shows how this particular doctor has grown over the time we've seen him on screen. Because it's very reminiscent of the way Sarah was with the ro- in with Cattlewell's robot mm-hmm. in the robot, where the doctor wasn't quite dismissive of her, but he clearly didn't see the connection the same way she did mm-hmm. because he didn't interact with that robot in the same way that she did. You know, and he's like, you know, it was just a robot, but it was a very, it was a very nice robot. Mm-hmm. Do you know? And it, not that he was condescending; he was very supportive of her. But you could tell he didn't really see it the way she did. Yeah. Um. It's nice to see that here. Like, I could totally see. Like, you could substitute out Leela for Sarah Jane in the story, and you could see the three of them having a good dynamic. Do you know? Or you know. I, I wouldn't have been, you know, completely surprised if, you know, Lila was like, why do you treat it like a human? You said it's a metal man. And if he's like, oh, well, a friend reminded me that robots are people too. Mm-hmm. Or something yeah. like that. Do you know I mean, I think it, it showed a nice progression. <clears throat> Sorry, showed a nice progression from robot to this. The only thing I wasn't sure about, and this kind of goes back to something we talked about last week, something we've talked about a lot, which is the hypocrisy of the Doctor. Mm. And that was that the doctor's idea wasn't to knock out Dask, which he clearly could have done. I mean, he could have had Lila belt Dask over the head with something heavy to knock him out. But instead, he deliberately chose to use helium to change Dask's voice so the robots wouldn't recognize him anymore. And given that the robots have the order to kill all humans, which the Doctor is aware that that's their order, by do- by choosing that seemingly passive action, he condemned Dask to death. Do you know what I mean? Now, Dask is a villain, 110%. I completely agree with that. But it's kind of like what we talked about last week, where last week, you know, no more Janus Thorns. I can't use it anymore. But don't mind me when I kick this guy into an electrified wall. Hmm. knowing it'll kill him do you know there was just something about it where i was kind of expecting you know to be like you know see dask like you're one of us or whatever and like try to expect it to become like a turning dask around moment i know dask just got strangled and i was like well you see that's the thing now right is because that you that's a very good point but no to my reading of the episode or to my watching of the episode as far as the doctor is aware dask has only instructed the robots to kill the rest of the crew dask changes the order in frustration to say kill all the humans do you remember after don't we hear doesn't the doctor hear 
the robots saying to kill all like but even if he said to kill the crew like the whole point was that they wouldn't listen to dask anymore yeah so and the doctor didn't do anything to like well when they don't listen to dask mm. what will they do there was no thought given to that. so either he didn't think of it which is an error in its own right yeah or he did think of it and that was the intended outcome now that it's not necessarily a bad thing it's not a bad outcome for that character yeah he no. was a villain 110 percent. but again it sort of highlights you know the sort of you know we've often referred to it like as the hypocrisy mm-hmm. of the doctor at the beginning of the story he told Lily, you don't need the gun yeah I bet by the end of the story, he really wish he fucking brought the gun. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, no, like, actually, you know, like, that's because I suppose, like, there is no real distinction between kill the crew and... Dask yeah, is crew. Yeah, and as well, like, because, like, there's something, you know, fucking stupid that happens later on in episode three that just compounds this. So it's, yeah, it's... Yeah, no, it, it is, like, it is in the hypocrisy territory. Yeah, and... Like I said, like we've talked before that like you know people sort of put the doctor up on this pedestal of oh the doctor hates violence and blah. yeah, but he does also use it when he has to. Mm. Um, but I think given the fact that the doctor is often so staunchly against violence, we do need to look at and analyze the moments where he does use it. I think or it's... the moments where he allows his inaction mm. to. I I think there's an element of like. I think there's an element of like the like the modern era and like the mm. the story that Russell T Davies built mm. to to kind of bridge the two, but even then, in the like in the modern era, there's still a lot of shady shit that the Doctor does. That it's like, yeah, it's, no, see, he does take the the dark path. So, yeah, yeah. Um, onto Leela. Hmm. Hmm. I love her reaction to having transcendental dimensions to explain to her. So he goes to this whole thing of, this is a bigger box and this is a smaller box. If I leave the big box here and I bring the smaller box closer to your face, which one is bigger? And she's like, the fucking bigger box, you dope. What are you about? Yeah. I love that because she's not fucking stupid. Right? Mm-hmm. She's like, the bigger box is still the bigger box. What do yeah. you want about? Uh, but then he explains the fact that like, if the bigger box was infinitely far away, it would fit inside the smaller box, and that's how it works. I love her response. is just, that's silly. Yeah. <laughs> it's, such a, it's such a brilliant response. And like, he gets so pissed off, and he's like, that's transcendental, <laughs> trans-dimensional engineering. Like the height of time or technology yeah. and whatever. I love that. Um, I also, like I mentioned a while ago, but I love how, other than the yo-yo thing, right, <laughs> where she's like, I've been doing it's, it's sort of like that look today, like, I've been falling for 20 minutes like, <laughs> yeah. I have been doing this yo-yo thing you told me to make it go up and down I thought it had something to do with what we were doing here or whatever and she does refer to it as magic um, she doesn't seem stupid around the technology do you know like it's the difference between her and Jamie mm-hmm. Jamie and Leila have a very similar thing in terms of they don't come from a technological background and yet, Jamie, it was like you said before, it was big metal beasties and, and mm. all this kind of stuff. And she just sort of accepts the fact that, like, okay, that's not a person. It's a robot. What's a robot? Oh, okay. Cool. And, like, I love the fact that she, she isn't made to seem stupid mm. about it. 
do you know like and I know they were going for like the Eliza Doolittle thing but Eliza Doolittle also wasn't stupid no she just talked like this don't she no no she, please don't ever do that again <laughs> <laughs> okay I won't that, that just no no let's just never do that again <laughs> Um, I do think as well like this is a short story you know it's four episodes um, but we do see Leela driving the plot Mm. in her own way you know yeah at one point she ends up getting locked in a room which is a bit shit but you know she you know she has her own insights Mm -hmm. she has her own part of the story Um, she's not just second fiddle and she's not just muscle no. You know? We get to see a lot more of her danger sense that we talked about a bit last week. Mm-hmm. Um it's still played off a bit more like a psychic ability, but I actually quite like it. Yeah. I like the idea that she's quite attuned to danger and so even when she doesn't know what it is, like clearly she's hearing a change in the engines or she's, you know, you know, feeling a difference in the oxygen level or something. She doesn't know what it is, but her body is detecting something um and obviously she's in a different environment it's very hard for her to identify what that something is um and what comes across as a little bit psychic and the doctor was quite dismissive of it mm-hmm. i do really like it yeah and no, i i think because it, it's not done it's not like beaten to death like you know it's not like mm. it's not quite spider-man's you know spidey sense or the peter yeah. tingle as it's now called <laughs> um it just like seems like a really heightened like hunter sense that's all yeah. um i did like the whole doctor's speech you know like by the biting of my tongue something wicked this way comes because mm-hmm. you know in with the, the original treatment for leela which was that she would be descended from a witch or something so i kind of mm-hmm. like that little throwback um i think we're two for two anyway with the leela uh stories so far i completely agree like it was a really really good showing and just talking about you know the behind the scenes relationship between the two of them like the on-screen chemistry is fantastic and like Mm. sometimes like you hear like actors that don't get on well on screen or or like off screen like they don't really act against each other or like they kind of ignore each other in the process no they're actually just acting off each other like they're really feeding off each other and they're reacting to what the other person is doing so it's really really good stuff there um and as such we'll get to see a really a really good relationship developing between her and the doctor um mm. as you mentioned like the she drives the plot like she's the one that first meets d84 mm. and like she also she's the one that's onto pool straight away because she says yeah. like you know like you move like a hunter he's a cop like or he's an undercover investigator so yeah like he's the same i like that aspect of things um like and again ingenuity resourcefulness <laughs> like uh i've lost my knife i'll just pick up the nearest thing that hand which is a fucking hand and i'll just throw it um so just a really really strong showing and yeah. she's yeah like it, again like she's just what you see on what you just see visually is not the entirety of the character it's just like there's so much more going on there and she's a fully fleshed out character which is great yeah no completely agree and the other thing as well is that um 
It's interesting how she doesn't like he has to explain body language to her mm-hmm. twice. <laughs> yeah. When she's naturally very good at reading body language. Yeah. <laughs> but like, I think he actually explains it to her twice. I'm like, that's not necessary. But I suppose it's one of those things of where like, you know, you do something instinctively, but when someone attaches a label to it that you're not familiar with. Yeah, I suppose. Yeah. I just find it weird. I was like, Yeah. <laughs> Uh, and then there's D eighty four. He's such a cutie. Can I can I keep him, please? <laughs> yeah, he's like a lost little puppy mm. most of the time, um, and he very much has a very childlike logic. Mm. Um, so I imagine I know like you were talking earlier about a particular scene with him with the doctor. Mm-hmm. I think I know what one it is, but do you want to talk about that scene that you were mentioning earlier? Oh, it's like the it's just like the scene where. Um, goes like I'm not like uh the doctor says like you know you have to stay here otherwise you'll die. He goes well like I'm not important and I I actually have to find the dialogue because the dialogue, um, me just kind of trying to remember it doesn't do the whole thing justice. Um, I'll find it. Oh yeah, here's a guy. So the doctor goes like it'll destroy your brain. He goes I'm not important and the doctor's like what I think you're very important, and it's. It's that wonderful thing of where it's like you're treating him like an actual individual. You're making him feel worth worthy of something. Mm. I really, the other really one like I really liked as well. I, I don't know where I thought you were going to go with oh. was when the doctor and Deity Four first meet, and Deity Four is explaining the situation. Do you know, mm. and the doctor's like, "Well, he's clearly on board," and Deity was like, "No, he's not." I know, he's like, but you don't know what he looks like. And he was like, but I know what they look like. As in, he knows what the crew looks like. Yeah. And the doctor makes a comment of, but did you know what they looked like before they came on board? And he sort of moves away as like, no. And it's just this childlike logic of, I didn't think of that. I failed at my job. And he looks so, like, again, like the whole point, like the whole underpinning of this story is the whole idea of robots don't have emotions mm. and you can't read emotions from a robot. But you clearly can mm-hmm. from D84 because the doctor realizes that he's upset him and that D84 is now thinking low of himself. And he's like, no, 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 you, you know, you did good. Like, doing, he's trying to reassure him. And I love that with that character because, yes, D84 is a different type of robot. You know, he's meant to be a dumb. Mm-hmm. And it does beg the question, did they take a dumb, uh, I'm putting this in quote marks for those who can't see me, um, and give him intelligence? Or did they take a different type, like a Vox robot or an SV robot, and place it, like gave it a dumb Hmm. look because i kind of get the feeling it's the first one (laughs) yeah um just because he's not very emotionally intelligent and it it's incredibly sweet like i said like the whole point is that robots don't have emotions but they clearly do and even without a change of his facial expression the pitch of his voice changes and his like his shoulders slump he puts his head down you can see the human emotion there like he's very reminiscent of 
um, you've seen iRobot, haven't you? I haven't. Yeah, so, like Sonny. He's like obviously he and there's the whole reminiscent of like oh can a ro- can a robot feel can a robot you know paint a beautiful masterpiece and just can you like that's the type of thing that like D eighty four's logic or feelings would be there, um, like there's two interactions that I absolutely love just in terms of because they just feel like so childlike and genuine is. Mm-hmm when the doctor's in the hallway and D84 follows up with him and he puts his hand on the doctor and the doctor just kind of gives a bit of a yelp of fright and he goes, I heard a noise and the doctor's like, that was me. I heard a noise. That was me. <laughs> I just like constantly saying, I heard a noise. And then there was like when Leela... The thing is, obviously, he's referring to Leela screaming her fucking head off trying to get out of her room. Yeah. <laughs> so he hears a noise that the doctor doesn't hear. Yeah. I did like when Leela throws the hand at him. He's like, "Please do not throw hands at me." <laughs> um, like I did get upset at his death because I think he was still felt like that he was completely disposable, and like mm. that is kind of sad, especially after like what the doctor had said to him about him being important. But maybe that was the motivation for him to do what he did because. You know, it's like I now feel like I am doing something worthy as well. Yeah, and like the one issue I had with it was, I think they they didn't give him a big enough send off. He only mm. took out one other robot, mm. which didn't really change much happening in that room. No, it it didn't which, because which kind of made it feel like. Did he have to? Do you know? Like, from his perspective, he did. But, like, when the story ended, you know, did he have to? Do you know? Is there... You know, if there had been, like, five or ten of them, I don't know if they even had ten robots altogether. They did. They did. You know, well, well, yeah, but I don't know yeah. if they had ten people. Oh, yeah, yeah. In robot suits to put them all in one room. Um, You know... At least it would have felt like more justified. Whereas, like, I just look at it going, Ah, fuck off, you had him kill himself for one of them. Surely you could have thought of something else. Maybe that just. Take out that one guy. But maybe that just adds to the tragedy. Yeah, I I think, I mean, yeah, I, I just. I would have liked to have seen for them to give him. Yeah. If they're going to have him go out that way, have him take as many as he can with him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know? No, I agree. Not just one guy that was just stood in the corner like a lemon doing nothing in here. Yeah. Great characters. I think we should. I think we should. So we have Uvanov, Tus, and Poole. How do you want to. So who should we do first and who should we do last? I think Uvanov last because. While he isn't a villain, mm. he is a dickhead. So, oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think we do him. Now. Let's do two spool and then you van off. I think. So van off laughs, is it? Yeah. Okay, cool. So, pool first. Two. Uh, either one. I don't mind. Uh, no, we'll, we'll, I think we'll do pool first. Okay. Um, 
so I would like to have seen what he, what he was like with D eighty four before he developed his robophobia, because clearly they were par- they were sent into the thing together, and like Leela said, or he said to Leela, like I don't like being on sandminers because I don't like being surrounded by robots, and it's like, like did he like completely hate the idea of being partnered up with D eighty four, or was it like this idea of where they know they would that was just a kind of a cover story for him? I would like to have seen a bit I, more. I, I, one thing I would say that I don't think he developed robophobia. He always had a robophobia. Mm. Like you, you don't just develop a phobia out of. Like he was triggered, and had mm. a mental breakdown. And like, actually, that's another point that I have because like, I developed there. I put in the word "develop" just because as a mm. sort of a word. Um, but like, I think that. While he did a very good job of portraying someone that has succumbed, finally succumbed to this uh, mentally, bro- uh, like just this mental ailment, the way in which they did the final breakdown, it, it didn't really gel up with what I assumed something that would be to ha- to to occur because. The way it is done is like it's like he's being attacked by a mental force from somewhere else, or he's being tortured. Whereas, like I can imagine someone that is that has robophobia and finally tips over it would be like kind of I don't know, just a lot more wild-eyed, panicky, looking around type thing, realizing he's in a room full of them and then just curling up into a ball type thing. Yeah, I think because they don't. I mean, they sort of say that, like, some people just don't react well to the robots. Which, I mean, mm. it's just this innate thing. And I do wonder, like, because when they were talking about um, What's-Her-Face's brother. Zelda's brother. Zelda's brother. He started saying that he was there when Zelda's brother broke. And then he changed, like, oh, I read it in a report. And... First of all, for someone who's meant to be undercover, you're super suspicious. Mm. Like, either he couldn't remember what his cover story was, or he went to say that he was there and whatever. And so I don't know if that was you know, meant to sort of make you question Yuvanov or whatever, but I did think that his reaction to the blood on the robot hand was a little too much too quickly. Like, I think yeah. the phobia was interesting. Mm-hmm. I think the idea of the phobia and like his breakdown was interesting to watch, but I think it was too much, yeah. too quickly. I agree with you. It looked like he was being attacked from something outside, like an outside force. Do you know? Like, I mean, I th- I think to put it in context. Like, if I you know saw you know, I have a terrifying fear of clowns, but like if I saw you know a broken clown doll holding a balloon or something or with blood on it I wouldn't like completely fucking lose my shit so I think because we don't know enough about Poole's history with robots it, it came across very intense like I don't think there's enough in this story to make it a six-parter I think if you had actually made this a six-parter it would have really damaged it mm. but if you were going to do something like this this particular story or this plot point should have been started much earlier. Yeah. Like you should have seen evidence of it in like episode one or something. Mm. Um, is it you know Pool is an interesting character because like 
we kind of side with him because we know like obviously the story title gives a lot away, but like we know that he didn't kill uh what the fuck's his name? Borg. I would say now their names are fucking ridiculous to follow. <laughs> um like he didn't kill the first guy. So he he discovered the oh, first yeah. guy dead. Oh, yeah, Chubb, yeah. Chubb, yeah. Um so we're inclined to side with Poole. He seems very level headed for the most part in the first two episodes. Um, you know, he doesn't jump to conclusions and whatever. But he's also super fucking suspicious. like he locks Leela in a room. Hmm. Like, what the fuck did you do that for? <laughs> do you know? Like he acts super suspicious and like I would have liked to have seen him with D eighty four. Mm. Like, because clearly, like, we didn't see him fighting. Like, when D84 carried him into the room, we didn't see him fighting him off or anything. Do you know? Mm. It's like, are they friends? Did he pick D84 as a robot that he was fine with or whatever? Um, yeah, I think Poole is an interesting character. I think. I think the breakdown, though, was a bit much. And obviously, we didn't really get any resolution for him as a character. He's just in this catatonic state. And he's not even in the final conflict. Yeah. You know? They left him on the floor. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and that's the thing, that's one thing about the story. It, it, it just ends. Like yeah. it. But I was watching the behind the sofa thing, so... I think I told you that this season, on one couch, you've got Philip Hinchcliffe, Louise Jamison, and Tom Baker. Mm-hmm. And on the other couch, you have uh, Peter Purvis and um, Sophie Aldred. Mm. And in terms of this episode's ending, they both thought you ran off and two were dead. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Jeez. They were like, did they just leave? Did, like, everyone died and the two of them just swan off? Um... So yeah, I think Poole doesn't really get a he doesn't really get a good conclusion to his no arc. Like, does he have an arc? Like, he has a dive, but like, mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> is there else? Uh, so I suppose speaking of the one of the like the um, moving on to the next possible survivor <laughs> according to the fucking <laughs> cast, uh, there's Toos. Yeah, I think Toos is a very competent first officer, a very competent second in command. Because mm-hmm. um, she seems very balanced for the most part. Mm-hmm. Like, focus on people, but also a focus on the job and a focus on profit. Um, and what I like about Toos as a character is that she really is our window into the everyday impact of the evil robots. And what that would do to this society. Pool is a fucking extreme case mm-hmm. altogether. We can't relate to Pool. It's a bit too much. But with Toos, you know, she's lying in bed and she wakes up and there's a robot and there's nothing fucking weird about that. Mm-hmm. You know, and she's chatting away to it and then she's going back to sleep and telling it to go and again, not making sure it leaves or whatever. Through Toos, we really see the proper fear of the situation that they're in if the robots are going rogue. Which I thought was really good. Like, she can't comprehend the idea that they would be evil. It just doesn't compute with her. Yeah. And so, when one... like, And I love... Again, I don't know if this is Philip 
but like you know we see the bruising on Yuvanov's head we see the bruising on Tusa's neck for the rest of the story mm-hmm. that bruising is there and so it's very visceral which I think is brilliant for that mm-hmm. character mm-hmm. like allowing her to be present um, for the rest of the story I also think we have to give her kudos for standing up to Yuvanov regarding letting Dask onto the control deck you know, when Dask is banging on the door to come in and Yuvanov runs over to let him in. She's like, no, no, the doctor said not to. They could have very easily written that, that Yuvanov is like, you know, I'm commander. I said, let him in. Or, you know, he's one of us, let him in. But they didn't. And he doesn't. Yeah. He doesn't open the door. He clearly respects her leadership in that situation. Which I personally think says more about her than it says about him. <laughs> oh, no, absolutely. Like, um... you know, that, that's a, they would have they would write it so that he respects her like she is the one in charge of the door if nothing else mm-hmm. she's in charge of the door and he respects that he doesn't try to override her or anything um which i thought was really good and like i think it says more about her than it says about him mm, no i agree i agree like i think like at the start i think a lot of them are presented as they're very there's a very misleading pres- presentation given of all the human crew of that sand miner because the first time you see them is like that they're kind of like lounging around like eating like grapes and all fucking other bits of food or whatever and they're getting massages and they're fucking playing chess and all this type of shit it's like this very elitist type thing and even like Ivanov kind of just very briefly Ivanov he points out like that some people are only on it because they're connected to the wealthy families back on their own city, you know, mm. sort of like buying your way, like kind of can sharp, you know, buying your commission type thing. Mm. So two when you first see her, like I, I think I would say episode one, you're given this impression like that. She's going to be oh, the fucking pearls of Pauline damsel in distress for it. But very, very quickly you see that she's a very competent bridge officer first and foremost, mm. you know, um and like i do like that she takes charge and like as you said like she overrules Vanoff on letting dask in you know it's like mm-hmm. no we can't because the doctor said this so we're not going to do it anymore um and she immediately like kind of in the absence of Vanoff, she just immediately kind of leaps into her second in command like there's no sort of umming and ahhing it's like okay um it's very much like you know ripley in alien which is like i was, I was thinking the same yeah thing. like Without without Dallas or Kane, I'm mm. next in charge. So like, very very much just leaps into it. You know, know know where you are in the the ranking position and be prepared to take the position of the person ahead of you if the need arises for it. So, I really really enjoyed Tuus in this. I thought she was a really really solid character. Never once did she drag anything down or anything like that. No one other point. And we brought uh brought her before the podcast because I wanted to see if you kind of picked up on it. Um, there's an element of dependency on Leela because mm. by Tuus because one you could say is that she's the only other female when she, yeah. present when when shit goes down, you know. Mm. Um, but like she gets hurt and Leela like tends to her wounds as best she can, you know. Mm. But then later on, now it might just be the way that the scenes were shot and the lifestyle of the crew members. But when she is like 
um she's in her bed she's woken up by sv7 and she's like oh send that send that woman to me to help me with my wound and it's like surely there's a lot more high-tech medical equipment that can help you with your wound i think she said i don't think she said that woman i think she said leela i think she said her name did she say leela i thought or or maybe she said i think she maybe said that girl or something because i don't think she addressed her by her name but maybe she did i could be wrong but and I, I think it was just like it, part of this might be framed by the, the reference. But I get, I was picking up on the slight attraction from Toos for Leela. Yeah, and I didn't pick up on it. Um, I picked up on there was a dependency there. Mm-hmm. Um, there was definitely an emotional dependency there. Like, you know, when Leela finally comes into the room, like Leela tries to attack you know, D eighty four to mm-hmm. defend her or whatever and you know, Toos collapses into her arms crying. Do you know? Yeah. Um and there I think mean, there's very much an emotional dependency there. I didn't look at it from a romantic perspective, but I think you very easily could. Mm-hmm. And like not in the sense of like it was you know um, you don't pick up a Leela reciprocating at all because like mm. that wouldn't be Leela's mindset. But I, I just but again I think maybe the particular scene shot where like Toos is like in her in her silks and she's lying in the bedroom and it's just mm. send Le- or bring Leela because you know I need help with my arm and just kind of thinking like surely you have medical equipment that could do the job just as easily but again that could just be born on the dependency for like another woman around would help put my mind at ease type thing um, yeah. I think you could very easily read it into a sexual way hmm. I now can't not see it that way because you mentioned it. <laughs> I didn't initially yeah. see it that but way. But I, I don't I don't I don't think like it kind of like takes away from anything at all. Like Oh know? god, no, no, yeah, no. Yeah. A, a situation like that never would. Yeah. Um like that's just not something I picked up on initially. I think she found Leela interesting. Mm. Oh I definitely. Think, I think whatever Leela did to her arm, she obviously bound it, but I imagine she did something else as well. Because she said that it felt a lot better. And clearly she was like, Okay. This woman's nice, and you know what she did to my arm felt great, and whatever. Do you know what I mean? Mm. Um, but I think you could very, I think you could very easily see it the other way, and you know maybe maybe that was intentional. Do you know? Um, maybe it was a little bit of subtext that they put in there. If you caught it, you did. If you didn't, you didn't. I uh, just looking up the line. She goes, um, and find the girl, Leela. So mm. yeah. We were both right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the best way. And then finally there's Uvanov. And again, someone that is presented in a different way because you think at the start he's going to be like this egotistical, incompetent prick. But you find out he's not incompetent. No. He's still like, an egotistical ready, prick. I was ready to go for him when he slapped Leela across the face. Because oh. that was fucking visceral. It was. Uh, it thankfully was. she's fully capable of taking care of herself mm-hmm. and just fucking... Clocked him on back. Um, he does come across as more than a little bit heartless. Clearly, someone for whom money is very important, and yeah. he particularly has a one-upmanship with I forgot her name again. Zelda. Zelda, because he sort of says that like it's sort of like kind of like pure bloods in Harry Potter that like they're the like the original families, which I'm guessing like the original colonizers of this planet or this planetoid or whatever and you know 
he's like, I may not be one of you, but like, I'm just like, I am the commander. I'm I'm going to make more money than you ever fucking dreamed of. Yeah. And I, I wonder if part of that, you know, because obviously we find out more about him later. Because in this, like in the last episode, he seems very caring and very considerate of other people. But, but just something <laughs> like, but see, there's also something weird in the dialogue when he finds out that Zilda is dead and he's like, this thing of like, I thought once this job was done and we got paid, it's like, were you doing that weird schoolyard bullshit? Like, you know, where you pull the girl's hair and kind of go, I like you. That was, was that what this... I kind of, I kind of thought he was going for that. They could be friends mm. like that, you know, away from, because my read of his thing with Zilda, right. Was, and this, like, I got this read at the very end. So if I was to watch the episode again, I think I'd see it differently. Um, we find out that what happened with Zelda's brother. So when we first hear about it, it's that Yuvanov threw him out. Yuvanov killed him. Yuvanov abandoned him in the sands, which is obviously why Zelda loses her fucking shit mm-hmm. when she realizes that he was the commander of that particular. But you know, he says that, you know, Zelda's brother had robophobia and he broke and he went outside himself and Zelda's father covered it up. So it's like, has he had for however many years all these rumours going around about him, about he how he killed a member of his crew to cover up some rich man's son not being able to hack it do you know and i wonder if in the first half of the story that's where his sort of thing with her came from it's like oh look i have another one of this rich man's kids on my fucking crew well i don't care who your daddy is i don't care what family you come from this is my crew and this is how i operate and so i do wonder if like and maybe that wasn't intentional in the script but i sort of saw that that like this is a person who there's lots of rumours going around about him that were created to cover up the fact that a rich man's son had a mental breakdown. See, they, and then it, but that just adds like a really kind of, like that, make, that makes a really good point. But then it just makes the script a bit convoluted because if she went on board, uh, okay, we know that the, the, her, she knows her brother died on Uvanov's ship. I don't think she knew it was him, though. Okay, because it is that's thing- where she finds the thing, and she's like, "You killed him." I don't think yeah. she knew it was him. But like, what what documents? Like, if he's if he's completely innocent of like the murder, and if she mm-hmm. found his log to say that that the brother had died, like, is it that like Vanoff is an idiot and left a potentially incriminating log note, kind of going, "This guy fucking died" or whatever, as opposed. No, I- I read it, like, again, because we have the reveal that we find out at the end what his connection to her mm-hmm. was. And so I read it that she found his logbook just in general of he was the commander of this particular crew. And there's her brother's name right there. So it's not necessarily the log of some golem wandered off the ship today. Hmm. it was you know 
year, da 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 da. You know, mining crawler, da da da. Commander Ivanov, you know, pilot, your man. And she's like, that was, that was the ship. He died. At. Like, it was fucking you. Like, you yeah. fucking killed him. Do you know? So, I wonder if that, because, like, clearly he never told her what really mm. happened. Yeah. Do you know? And, like, like I said, I, I felt, I made me feel a little bit of sympathy for him that there was a cover up of it and clearly. You have people like Poole going around saying, well, he killed someone. Yeah. He killed his previous crew. Like, that would make any working environment incredibly awkward. Oh, it would. But see, there's one thing then like that, and this is kind of, I suppose, the last point that might bring the the sympathy for the character into question, okay? Is that Mm. he's clearly broken up about about that person dying. Mm. Yet he seems to be very, I won't say cavalier, with his attitude in terms of, um, well, maybe it is a bit cavalier because like he seems like when he's finding out that people are hurt or missing or whatever, you would think that losing someone on your crew under like circumstances like that before would make you a small bit more like wary and sympathetic. So like, when he finds out that, that people are missing or that people are hurt, he seems a bit kind of, sorry cavalier with his whole thing of well, we'll just get the shares of the fucking dead people, and it's like yeah, well, that's where I think this. And again, this is me, me possibly reading massively into it. Because my initial view was he doesn't really inspire confidence in his crew. His crew clearly don't respect him very much, which I imagine pisses him off, which makes him more irritable, which makes people not have any respect for him. It's this fucking never-ending cycle of shit. But again, if a rumour has followed you for however many years that you killed off members of your crew... Not that you start to adopt that behavior, but you adopt a fuck them, just take care of myself sort of approach. And then, like in the last episode, we just see the 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 pull of the curtain to see the real Vanoff. Then, yeah, like once he sees Pool and he's like, "Fuck's sake, this is what happened." Like Pool suspected me because of this, but. Her brother had the same thing Poole had. Do you know? Um, to, to be honest, like I'm very conflicted about him overall because he's very much someone who, like, the prophet is important. He enjoys being a commander. Like, they're saying like, he's one of the best fucking commanders and pilots they've ever had. Do you know what I mean? He's clearly very good at his job. Um... You know, and he's like, you know, oh well, sure, we can just divide up thing. Well, I wonder if part of that is the fact that like none of these people really like each other all that much. Oh, Jesus, no! They turn. They turn I imagine on... he's like, don't fucking pretend you're upset. They turn on each other like the drop of a hat. Yeah, so I do wonder if there was a time where he was more caring and more compassionate. And like I said, having your reputation destroyed mm. to cover up something else. Maybe it would have an effect on you. Either that, or they really wanted you to believe that it was him. Yeah. And so they leaned really heavily into him being a dickhead before the reveal, and then they switched it around. I think the one thing, though, that we probably could agree on is that when it comes to, like, the tangible threat, mm. he has a lot of positives to him because he's very, like, he's quite capable of handling the tangible threat in front of him. Oh, yeah. Like, I love the fact that, like, 
he clearly gets very excited with us. He's like, "Come on, Deuce, we're gonna fucking do something." Yeah, like, we're like, we're, like anything, <laughs> it's we're, gonna be great. We're gonna we're gonna go on the offensive and buy the doctor some time. It's like, or yeah. give the doctor a hand. It's like, I like that. I like that's the type of person like that. You yeah. know, I can get. But again, I wonder if that's the person he was ten years prior. Prior, yeah. So, like. <sighs> Yeah, I agree with you. Like, I don't really know how to feel about him overall because, like, at at the end of the day, this is still the guy that has, if he's bought into his reputation so much, he's still the dickhead that fucking slapped a woman for no fucking reason. He slapped a woman he thought killed someone, but still not entirely appropriate. And he is still a dickhead for the first half of the story. Do you know who is just complete other level though? Oh, the the fucking Gary Glitter lookalike. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yes. Dusk, a.k.a. Taron Capel. Who is 1000% batshit crazy. Oh, he really is. Like, he was raised by Robox, or around Robox. It's like, okay. Cool. Right. So he wants to destroy their programming to free them and he's going to do it by committing murders on this particular crew. Fine. My issue with Dask, other than the fact that you could tell in episode 2 that it was him because they showed oh. his fucking trousers. And then in episode 3 they showed his face in the fucking swirly well, yeah, well, jigamatron. Well, well I imagine that was meant to be the reveal. Do you know what I mean? Um, but I'm disappointed because we didn't get to know him more. Like out of Toos and Yuvanov and Poole and whatever... We spend the least amount of time with Dask out of those four. Mm. Because he's always off alone. He, he's rarely ever on screen. He only has like two or three scenes before shit hits the fan. So you don't really get to know him. So like, it's like, okay, it was the other guy. The other guy is the bad guy. But you don't really see him interacting with the robots one-on-one. Like, it would have been interesting to see him, like, we obviously see him defending robots as a concept. Do you know, when they're talking about, like, oh, I heard a guy, the robot pulled his arm off while giving him a massage. And he's like, they can't do that. Or whatever. But I would have liked to have seen him stand up for, like, to have a scene of him stand up for a robot on a personal level. Do you know? Or, like, say, if, um, you know, when the ship was, you know, malfunctioning or whatever if you know the doctor was like oh send the robot into whatever and he's like no you'll you'll destroy him to make to see him being defensive of them i kind of would have bought into him a bit more but he just comes across as a thousand percent batshit crazy because you don't know enough about him Mm. like we know more about pool (laughs) than we do about dask so I have lots of thoughts on Dask, right? First of all, we'll talk about like the whole who's the killer fucking thing. And it's like, okay, as I said before, if they'd shot episode two, if they'd shot it two inches lower, there's mm. doubt. But otherwise, it's Dask. And then we have episode three. His face appears on the screen in the weird swirly Matron, whatever. When they're doing SV... SV7, yeah. But, it's like, but then the next scene is him wearing this big fucking golden cloak with a hood over it doing his like reprogramming of one of the robots and it's like why in your own secret lair are you wearing a disguise 
despite the I fact think, that you... I think that's meant to be like a protective radiation suit, Patty. I don't think it was meant to be a disguise. But why, if that's the case, then why is like you know, why is there no comments about radiation made by oh, everyone else? Well, that no, seems I, to, I think it's, I think it's just like like a surgeon's outfit. I don't know. It's very ornate for a surgeon's outfit. Isn't it? Have you seen the fucking clothes these people wear? Yeah, true. But like, he looks like a villain from fucking Stingray. Um, but motivational, motivation-wise, mm. he has a very he has a very kind of I suppose altruistic viewpoint, which is that robots should not be subservient to anyone. Mm. Right. However. They can be subservient to me. Yes, he drastically fucking pole vaults into Cuckooville with the wearing of the, the robot face paint. Um, also, if you are trying to free robots from their oppressors, what makes you different from the oppressors? Because you're lobotomizing them against their, well, we could say will, because mm. when he goes to um, free, and I'm doing air quotes here, mm that one robot on the repair table, the robot is trying to resist. And And when he's trying to be like, oh, there, there, and hold his hands, the robot's like, fuck off. Yeah, it's like, no, the robot is obviously, he's parroting back programming language. He's saying priority, priority, one priority. But he's saying it in a very distressed tone of voice, which to Mm -hmm. him means this is not right. And Dask is, in in my head, he's doing no different than performing a lobotomy on them because he's Mm -hmm. only programming to do what he instructs them to do. So like this whole thing of, oh, my brothers, whatever. It's like, no, you're still fucking their master. You were still their fucking master. Like, you know, I had to phrase that very differently. And so any sort of like altruistic fucking point of view, because like, there's so like, there's so many comparisons to the movie version of iRobot, because I've yet to read the story iRobot, read the book. But you have in the movie you have James Cromwell's char- James Cromwell's character, the guy who d- gives Sonny the ability to. Br- uh, he's away from the mainframe. He can't be affected by the other AI, and he wants the robots to be perfectly free. And and that's it. There's no ulterior motive. He just wants them to be free to do their own thing, not under his control or under the control of Sonny or any other AI. Mm. Just free, and like. you're meant to compare like him to like i suppose dask in this but like dask is holding of like no it's like irregardless like i'm still going to be in charge so like fuck this guy and i suppose very quickly lastly the robots themselves the robots themselves i i find these robots quite interesting Mm -hmm. because there is like like is it they're not robots in the sense of, you know, a Roomba is a robot. Do you know Do they have distinct personalities? Yes and no, I think. Um, but they clearly, you know, and you could say like, oh, it's just programmed into them, but like, you know, D84 is the prime example of mm-hmm. the way he behaves. That doesn't come across as programming. No. That comes across as an hey. evolution of mm-hmm. programming. Do you know? Um, you know, giving a computer the ability to learn. Do you know? Um, 
I think the design of them is really interesting. Uh, the tinfoil on their shoes is a bit much, but other than yeah. that, the design of them was really interesting. I think the idea of the three classes of them was interesting. That you have the D class, who are called the Dumbs. And it's like, why create... It actually, do you know what it reminded me of? It just totally reminded me of um, Obi-Wan Kenobi, the show. Oh, the um, the loader droid. And the loader thing. And it's like, oh, they don't speak. And Leia's like, but what if he has something to say? Mm. <laughs> why would you create a line of servitor robots that can't speak? Well, what's the point of that? So, I, I suppose if you think about it, like it's maybe the the D units, so maybe like the Dumbs, were the first battle robots created. And then when they upped it, rather than like destroying them or recycling them, mm. they just made them, you know, like menial uh, laborers. And then the next class would then be the ones in charge of like, your system administration, all this type of stuff. And then they create, so they're the Vox, and then they created the Super Vox. And like, even like, you're on about like uh, personality and stuff like SV7, even though he is like essentially a programmed unit, he still has a bit of personality to him. Yeah. It's interesting what you say about like maybe the the D units came first mm. because if you had uh, an entire line of robots with these very ornate heads, um, their faces are very pronounced. Their eyes are ridiculous. The eyes are a bit creepy. Um, like they're creepy when they're normal. When they're red, they're evil red eyes. But when mm. they're normal, they're a bit creepy. I'm not surprised people would develop robophobia if you have this human-looking thing that doesn't fucking speak. Yeah, or like it's like that's fucking creepy. So, like from a production standpoint, I love the design of all these robots. They're they're amazing. They're so so good. From the viewpoint of someone that relies on them in everyday society, and then you suspect them of murder, absolutely fucking terrifying. Because Mm -hmm. Um, the game uh, Alien Isolation. Mm. Um, there's robots in that, and like they're like the Mark One version of what you know. Spoiler: Ash is, mm. um, but they have just this bland, like kind of Auton-like face. Mm. But their eyes glow red when they're coming for you, and it's like Jesus Christ! Like they're just coming with these like, blank expressionless faces when they're trying to kill you, and it's terrifying. Here's the exact same thing, like production-wise and design-wise, there stunning to look at one of my favorite robots in the entirety of doctor who um but from like the in-universe point of view robophobia is something that i completely fucking understand Mm. but it like it being like such a pronounced thing Mm. if the first line of robots you ever interacted with didn't fucking talk yeah that's fucking creepy or like and like that you know like the way that you know we'd kind of go if someone says something that we're kind of confused by, we just go, huh? We mm. can actually contort our face to like do the confused look. Whereas if you say mm. that to one of the, the dumbs or even like to a Vok and they just tilt their head to the side, mm. that that's a terrifying thing, you know? Um, so like hats off to the production staff. Like this is, I, I would say personally, this is up there with the production value of Planet of Evil. Mm. I'd agree. I agree. And for an entirely studio-based story as well. Mm, absolutely. You know? um, it was really, really good. 
So we come to the final point of the podcast where we will give our, each of us give a score out of five for the story. So mm. I'll go first. Okay. Uh, I really enjoyed this story. Actually, um, back when Doctor Who would appear randomly on UK TV Gold, uh, episode two of this was one, was one of the early episodes of Doctor Who that I ever saw. So, mm. yeah, so I went from last episode of Hand of Fear to a couple of days or a couple of weeks later, and it's like episode two of Robots of Death. So I've been in love with these designs of these robots like ever since then. Um, but I really, so like I really, really enjoyed the story. Um, I love the dynamic between the Doctor and Leela. Uh, just as we said, like the where they explain the transdimensional engineering. That's silly. That's like oh, it's so good. It's such good writing. Um, like another good showing for Leela. Again, you mm-hmm. said like that. She she's like a fully fleshed out character. You know, she's not just mm-hmm. muscles. She's not just looks. She's not there to scream or anything like that, or like for the to get the doctor to show how smart he is. No, none of that. She's an equal character that is held, capable of driving the show by herself. Mm-hmm. Um, I actually thought the supporting cast did a really good job. You know, um, mm-hmm. I think definitely there was some writing and direction choices that kind of let down some of the performances uh pool's descent into his robophobia dask just you know taking the mask off and like showing how batshit he is like again the groundwork wasn't laid to kind of like the little bits of sympathy for robots or anything like that mm. he's just very analytical um but and i suppose like the title characters the robots themselves done wonderfully hats off to the actors behind the masks because they made you actually feel the emotions of all the characters or they made you feel the presence of all the characters which is something that's very hard to do for actors and anyone that can do that is a great actor um the only major problem i have with the story is the killer is revealed so early on um and like my school of thought when it comes to murder mysteries is tell us who the killer is at the start and then let us watch how the detective catches him, a la, mm. like, the Columbo method. Or have it be at the very end, and we get the big reveal as to who the fucking murderer is. Mm. Don't, you know, give it the game away, you know, halfway through. And then it's like, all right, we're just waiting for the fucking reveal now, <laughs> you know? Um, like, so, like, I just really, really didn't like that. And I think the other thing, like, just... And I talked about it that didn't really lend itself very well was Poole's breakdown. Yeah. I think it was just it came across as very over the top. Yeah. Um, but I really, really do enjoy this story, and so I'm going to give this a four point five out of five. Very good. Very good. You're riding relatively high this season. I think this is a really, really good season. Hmm. Like you're currently sitting at four point two. Yeah, and like it's you know you've kind of got the bittersweet of I suppose like the Sarah Jane leaving, but on like a powerhouse performance, and then we bring in a brand new companion that's just you know is there on delivery, you know. Yeah, no, I agree. So for me, I'm not gonna lie, I struggled at the beginning with this story. Um, 
I loved the Doctor and Leela. Their dynamic was fabulous. But there were too many characters. There's a lot of body counts, all right. There's too many characters and, like, Chubb and the one in the fucking grain silo and even, like, you had Borg on the list of characters for just at one point. I'm like, who the fuck? Like, you don't get to feel for these characters, really. Um, and so I thought there was too many of them. I didn't know who was who. They didn't really define their personalities that much. So, like, I got confused as to which one was Borg and which one was whatever, you know? Um, well, to be fair, like, I found that Borg and Chubb kind of do look similar, just with different colored hair. Like a palette yeah, swap of each mean, other. So like that I, I sort of struggled with. Now, obviously they killed enough of them off relatively quickly <laughs> that that was fine. Um, but that for me was particularly difficult to get into because I'm like, am I meant to like any of these people? Because at the moment I don't. Um, and while I still think that's a problem, particularly Dask, we didn't get to know Dask enough for the, oh my God, it was him type reveal. Um, I did enjoy it overall, do you know? Um, you know, I think the Dask reveal would have been done better if we'd had more scenes with him and the Doctor. They only share, like, one scene together hmm. properly, yeah. you know? Um, I said the whodunit was very interesting to watch, even though they do give it away in the second episode, if you're paying attention. Um, but they did a good job in making you be like, well, what about Poole and what about Yuvanov? Like, if they're not the killer, what the fuck is up with them? And you're, like, so, and you're kind of going, is it all the robots or is it just specific robots? And Yeah, and you're like, and how is it being done, do you know? Um, one of the things I like about this, like, sort of capsule-based story, like, because it's all in the studio, I love, I both love and find it hilarious, the style and the decadence of the crew. So you were talking about you had, you know, Toos in her fucking, you know, Sick fucking sleeper yeah. clothes or whatever um, with her heels and her, like, they all had ridiculous fucking headwear. Um, you know, hers was like a sun going down the middle of her head. Mm-hmm. Um, but I love how decadent they are, both in their clothing, in their quarters. Um, and Philip Pinto kind of said this as well on the behind the sofa that like it would have been very easy to have it be very industrious. It's a miner, do you know? They're mining, but like they're not mining. Yeah, the robots are mining. Do you know? And it gives this idea of when you have robots to do most things for you, you would turn your attention to decadence. Like you know, they have these really comfy sofas in their rooms. I love Leela just bounce up and down the sofa in the background. Um you know, like Toos's room looks like she's fucking Aphrodite or something. I suppose in a way it's like it's no different than like you'd see or you'd read like in I suppose ancient times, specifically say like the Roman Empire, you'd have all the legionnaires like fucking eight to a tent or whatever. Meanwhile the general is in this big lavish tent with like all the fucking bells and whistles that he needs. So kind of like that. But yeah, it it is great to see them just uh lying back, you know, bring me another bath. <laughs> yeah, do you know what I mean? Or like the fact that you found like we've only been on the fucking commandic for an hour and she's going to take a rest period. Yeah. It's like, oh well she is entitled. It's like like clearly like, you know, we can see it like they say about Ivanov, he's one of the best, you know, 
commanders they've ever had, who he's the best pilot, or whatever. Um, but I find it really interesting to see this dependence on the robots, and we combine that with Tusi's reaction. I think it's great. Um, I think the, you know, this is, you know, the sort of connections with Alien mm-hmm. are very much there. You know, the mining ship shares and all that kind of stuff very much present. Like I said, Deuce or Deuce, Deuce kind of being like a more feminine version of Ripley. Ripley yeah. Very much present um, in the story as well. Um, and so it's kind of like Clue meets Alien. Yeah. No. And I love it. I, I think that's brilliant. Um, yeah. For me, in terms of the score, um, I agree with you on Poole's Descent into Mania. I think that was like, I have no issue with the Descent into Mania part. No. I have an issue with the severe overacting, the severe overwriting they did yeah. for it. Um, and similarly with Dask, while I have nothing against the whole idea of him wanting to be like them and even the hypocrisy like you said of you know he wants to be one of them but he still wants to control them i think there were too many characters and we didn't get enough time to get to know them enough mm-hmm. so for me i gave it a five i thought it was really really good um but there's too many characters and they didn't treat them all quite as well as they should so you just said you gave it a five i gave it a four out of five Okay, you, you didn't say 4 out of 5 and sorry, you just said I gave it a 5. <laughs> no, I said 4 out of 5. Or maybe my audio skipped or something. <laughs> no, I said 4. <laughs> uh, <laughs> we'll, get, we'll confirm it on the playback. <laughs> so, I'm still, for the most part, trailing behind you, hmm. score-wise, uh, this season, with the exception of The Hand of Fear. Um, but no, like I will say, like, I, I really ended up really enjoying the story. I totally understand why like it's, you know, really high on people's like favorite stories lists mm-hmm. i agree with you about leela she's very much two for two um i just there was a couple of character things where i'm like eh. um like, for the season 13 uh blu-ray box set that was recently released mm-hmm. uh one of these robots was utilized in the ad with louise jameson and it, like it has like it's glowing red eyes and stuff like that so but that was pretty cool yeah no, according to the Jameson, like, um, personally, I haven't seen them at events I've been to, but apparently, like, the robots is a common cosplay, particularly, like, Doctor Who specific events. Um, so, yeah. No, it's, it's a good story. Um, couple of character misses, but, like, that, that's fine, you know? And a lot in there, depending on what you like from your sci-fi. Mm-hmm. Definitely. A lot of stuff to choose from. A lot of stuff. So next week we're going to have our final story of this season. Paddy, what is it called? It is called The Talons of Wang Chiang. Mm. Yes. Another story that from again, I've never seen it, but from you know, it's often very highly thought of. However, also a bit controversial. So Yes. At the moment I think it is the only episode it is the only Doctor Who story on Britbox that comes with a trigger warning trigger at the starting at the start. Yeah. Um yeah. We'll talk more about that next week. But next week, Talons of Winchine. Bye. Bye. <laughs>
Thank <laughs> you.